Hello, American Journal of Transplantation readers. This is Josh Levitsky. I'm a hepatologist at Northwestern, and this is the June AJT Highlights, a podcast where we're going to go over the editor's picks for the month of June. And we'll be talking today about uh, six papers, one basic science and five clinical, that were selected by the editor as key papers in the June issue of, of AJT. With me today is uh, Dr. John Friedewald, who's a transplant nephrologist and professor of medicine at Northwestern here with me. And he's going to be talking about the three papers that address clinical issues in kidney transplantation. So welcome, John. Thanks, Josh. Glad to be here today. Okay, great. I'm going to just do a brief overview of the papers that we're going to be talking about, and then we'll dive right in. So uh, we're going to start off first with two uh, liver papers. The first one is going to be on in situ normothermic perfusion in a study that came from England that did this normothermic perfusion in donor after cardiac death and had some interesting findings compared to non-perfused DCD. Then we'll be going right into a paper that looked at optimal timing of hepatitis C treatment in co-infected patients, HIV and hepatitis C, who have end-stage renal disease and whether patients should be treated before or after kidney transplantation. Then we'll, in the middle, we'll be talking about a uh, basic science paper that has um, potential for clinical applications. This is a murine cardiac model where uh, the authors investigated signaling through a complement pathway, C3AR1, that seems to be important in allo responses and maybe another pathway that uh, could be targeted to prevent rejection. So a lot of clinical applications there. And then John Friedewald is going to go over three papers in kidney. The first one is going to be looking at cell-free DNA in detecting rejection in kidney transplant recipients. The next one will be discussing eculizumab and positive cross-match recipients and sort of the outcomes of uh, patients who have donor-specific antibodies, positive cross-matches, and eculizumab treatment. And then um, finally, we'll be going over a, a really interesting article on alloimmune responses following blood transfusions after kidney transplantation. Um, and he may be doing it a little bit out of order there, maybe talking about that one first. So I'm going to first start off with um, a paper that the title is In Situ Normothermic Perfusion of Livers in Controlled Circulatory Death Donation May Prevent Ischemic Cholangiopathy and Improve Graft Survival. And this was, uh, the lead author is Christopher Watson. This is a group from Edinburgh and Cambridge in the United Kingdom. And briefly, the issue that they're were approaching was the fact that uh, donor after cardiac death and liver transplantation has a high rate of ischemic cholangiopathy in some series upwards of 30%. And sometimes uh, there is a diminished survival and certainly a diminished graft survival that can be related to ischemic biliary strictures. And this group in, uh, in Cambridge and Edinburgh, Edinburgh have pioneered a 
technology called in situ normothermic regional perfusion in which the uh, patient undergoes cardiac death, a, a controlled cardiac death, and then immediately gets placed in situ so that the um, machine is hooked up inside the patient into the aorta and the venous drainage, and the liver is perfused to restore perfusion to the liver while it's in the patient. This is different than machine perfusion where the liver organ is removed and put on a pump and then used later for organ transplant. The idea is that this may be more of a natural uh, simulator of donor after brain death where you have you immediately restore perfusion to the organ and remove the organ once it's perfused in situ. And so uh, this was not a randomized controlled trial. They are just reporting outcomes of 43 DCD liver transplants that were perfused using normothermic reperfusion, and they compared them to 187 DCDs that were non perfused, their standard approaches like we would do here in the United States. And the results were really quite amazing that there were several components of improved liver and biliary function with the normothermic reperfusion. So they found that early allograft dysfunction was significantly lower in the NRP group, that's the uh, normothermic reperfusion, compared to the uh, non-perfused. Uh, they found that there was near statistical significance of liver graft failure at 30 days, uh, improvement with uh, the normothermic reperfusion. Very importantly, they found that none of the patients of their 43 developed ischemic cholangiopathy uh, compared to 27% of the non-reperfused, which is really a standard rate. Um, and even there was, there was less anastomotic strictures and there was a trend towards better overall survival. And the authors do recognize that this is not a direct prospective uh, randomized study and that they are comparing older cohorts of regular DCD versus this group. But it does provide a proof of principle that likely uh, there should be better outcomes if you're perfusing immediately after donor, after cardiac death compared to um, just storing the organ in cold solution where the ischemic injury, the warm ischemia and the cold ischemia can really take its toll on the liver and the bile ducts. So uh, I think this, um, I know this group is pioneering this and is doing further prospective studies, which we'll really need to um, consider this for clinical practice, but it, uh, nevertheless, it's, it's very exciting. So the, uh, the next paper is uh, kind of a mixture of uh, hepatology and uh, nephrology and renal transplant issues. So this group uh, from University of Alabama, Boston, uh, the lead author is Brittany Shelton. The title is Optimal Timing of Hepatitis C Treatment Among HIV Hep C Co-Infected ESRD Patients Pre- versus Post-Transplant. This group analyzed this question, which is if you have a a co-infected patient with HIV and Hep C, should you treat their hepatitis C before the transplant or after the transplant? And this is important because uh, if you treat before the transplant, you may improve the liver outcomes, but uh, it may uh, disadvantage 
kidney candidates on the list because they won't be as um, candidates for a hepatitis C positive organ, or at least that's how it is now. Although, of course, there's interest in using hepatitis C positive organs into negative recipients. So this whole thing could change over time. But in general, right now, if, if you make them negative before the transplant, it can result in longer times to getting a transplant. So it's sort of this uh, risk benefit of treating before or treating after. And so they didn't actually use real data. They did a simulation model to take the looking at different factors such as fibrosis and also time to transplant and also looking at things like costs, so cost-effectiveness of approaches, which is really important, quality-adjusted life months and life months, uh, and compare depending on the degree of fibrosis and how long uh, one would wait for a kidney transplant, whether it's better to treat before or afterwards. And this is also unique because this is an HIV co-infected population uh, previous studies have looked at this issue in the mono-infected, and the idea here is that co-infected with HIV and hep C can lead to more fibrosis progression in the liver. And so this um, is sort of a unique population to make these uh, critical decisions on. And basically, with this model, did a number of analyses to look at the cost-effectiveness, the quality of life and um, the, the, the lengthening of the, or the improvement in, in survival by these life months. And essentially, there's a, a real major message here, which is it seems that if you have mild fibrosis, so just stage one fibrosis, it's much better, at, at least in this, the situation where you, we are in currently, to wait till post-transplant to treat. Uh, because the patients will likely get transplanted sooner, and there really is not much of a benefit to their liver if they have mild fibrosis to, to have to treat them before the transplant. So it's easy to wait till afterwards, and that was cost-effective, led to also higher quality of life by this simulation model. However, if you have more advanced fibrosis, F2 or F3, uh, particularly if there's longer than 18 months wait for a kidney transplant, it's better to treat them beforehand. Um, that was probably the most significant finding was that their liver outcomes, um, they have longer life expectancy, quality of life, and also cost effective to treat them if they have advanced fibrosis rather than waiting until post-transplant. Uh, they seem to do better. The interesting group where they had sort of a mixed message is that if you have cirrhosis, Certainly, treating them pre-transplant will help the liver, but it may not be cost-effective because there's sort of diminished, and, and in terms of life years saved, because there's sort of diminished survival once you have cirrhosis. Um, the way I think about it, though, is that if we have somebody with cirrhosis who needs a kidney transplant that doesn't have portal hypertension, I think we would treat them and sort of see what happens um, and kind of discuss with the nephrologist the best approach. But it does bring up that, I think the major message is if you have advanced fibrosis, treat them pre-transplant. And if you have minimal fibrosis, it's probably best to wait to post-transplant. And I, I think this message is pretty similar between HIV and hep C co-infection and also mono-infection. Would, would you agree with that, John? I would. And I, I think the 
I guess one important variable in this whole model is um, access to a deceased donor kidney transplant. And you know what we've seen uh, more recently is uh, changes in, in access to different types of organs, particularly when we talk about subgroups of patients who are willing to accept either an HIV positive or hepatitis C positive uh, donor kidney. And so I think, you know, this, how this plays out, it'll be different in all the different microclimates of the country based on organ availability, both virally infected and non-virally infected. And so I think, you know, I think every, every center will probably interpret these results a little bit differently depending on their mix of patients, the risk they're willing to take, and what sort of organs they're willing to accept. So It's, it's great that we actually can cure people now. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we're even talking about treating uh, post-transplant when before with interferon, it was a no-no. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the fortunate thing is we can cure basically 100% of these patients. So the next uh, paper that I'm just going to briefly mention is a really interesting basic science paper. This comes out of uh, Mount Sinai uh, by Dr. Douglas uh, Mathern and colleagues. And essentially what this study was looking at was um, a specific complement signaling pathway on CD8 positive cells called C3AR1. And the interest was that you could, you could target this um, C3AR1 without incapacitating the entire complement system that would make a significant risk of infection, that, that this could be targeted sort of like almost like co-stimulation blockade and perhaps improve the current, on the current rejection rates or allow CNI therapy to be lessened with a combination therapy. And so this was tested in a uh, mouse model of heterotopic heart transplant. And basically what they found was that there was prolonged survival when they used knockouts for um, C3AR1. Um, and this actually was prolonged with tecrolimus therapy, CNI therapy, above just using tecrolimus therapy alone. And so the combination of having the knockout of this C3AR1 and tecrolimus, the survival was better in these mice for heart transplant than just tecrolimus alone. And so then they looked at this as from a translational perspective. There is a, um, a pharmacological agent that blocks this uh, C3AR1 antagonist, and they found similar results by blocking this and using tecrolimus uh, in this mouse model. And so they did, a, they did um, several elegant immunological studies that I'm not going to go through. You can read the paper. But ultimately, the interest here is to develop this in human organ transplantation, maybe not just cardiac. It certainly needs to be tested in other organ transplant models. But um, there's definitely industry interest in targeting complement activation. And this pathway could be very nicely targeted without sort of, again, incapacitating the entire complement system where there can be higher risks. So I think this will certainly lead us to more, probably more animal studies on organ other organ transplants, but hopefully some preliminary clinical trials where these a novel blockade of this pathway could be implemented in, in the next coming years. Okay, so now we're going to move uh, to John Friedewald's kind of review of the three papers 
in kidney transplant that were the editor's picks. And uh, John, I'll let you uh, talk about those. All right. Thanks so much, Josh. And again, thanks for the invitation. As uh, you alluded to in the introduction, um, I'm going to review three papers. And you know, the common theme that runs through all these papers is antibody-mediated rejection in kidney transplants. So if you've had it up to your eyeballs with antibodies, you can flip channels now. But I think these are all interesting in their own way, and I'm, I'm glad the editors chose them uh, to review. So the first one I'm going to talk about is a paper from a group in London, UK. First author is Sedva Hassan. Uh, the title is Shared Alloimmune Responses Against Blood and Transplant Donors Result in Adverse Clinical Outcomes Following Blood Transfusion Post-Renal Transplantation. This is a very well uh, done study just to start, um, and it answers a very important clinical question that comes up often in practice. And the question is, do blood transfusions after a kidney transplant or post-transplant have an adverse outcome in terms of patient or graft survival or any other deleterious effects on the clinical course. Um, there's been a lot of debate about this, and you often hear that, well, patients are immune suppressed, so they're less likely to form antibodies. Uh, but this paper, again, is very elegantly designed. So what the group first did was looked and just wanted to see if patients that received post-transplant uh, transfusions were more likely to have bad outcomes. And they found that. They looked at a, a number of uh, about a, just over 1,000 patients who had received a post-transplant blood transfusion, packed red cell transfusion. And what they found was um, statistically significant higher levels of antibody-mediated rejection, uh, the development of de novo donor-specific antibodies, and worse graft uh, outcomes. So that was sort of a proof of concept. But what they did next was very interesting. They actually went back and found patients that had received a post-transplant transfusion. And working um, with the National Blood Center in the UK, they were able to go back and identify donors who had given the blood and go and consent them to be uh, HLA-typed. And what this allowed them to do was determine if in patients that received a blood transfusion, did they develop what they called TSAs, which are transfusion-specific antibodies, to, to uh, differentiate them from donor-specific antibodies, DSAs. Um, and these were all patients that were post-transplant on immunosuppression. So what they found was, in fact, that there was a high level, uh, around 50% of patients who developed TSAs, or transfusion-specific antibodies, following um, a blood transfusion. Now, uh, an important side note is that all the blood in that was transfused in this study through the National uh, Blood Service in the UK is already leukoreduced. So one you know, common um, idea is, well, we can leukoreduce the blood transfusion and it, by having fewer white blood cells reduces the risk of HLA sensitization. Well, all the blood that was transfused in this, for the patients in this trial already had leukoreduced blood. But despite that, a large number developed both transfusion-specific and donor-specific antibodies and went on to have higher rates of antibody-mediated rejection. So I think that's the, the basic over, overview of this, and I think it was really important to be able to tease apart in patients uh, who developed new donor-specific antibodies, which ones were transfusion-specific, which ones were specific to the transfusion but not the donor, and how, ma how much overlap there was. Some important questions probably still remain um, in terms of timing of transfusion. They do note that most of the transfusions were within the first week post-transplant, and a number of these patients did receive antibody, uh, sorry, uh, lymphocyte-depleting antibody induction 
And so, you know, again, the theory that, well, if you give it in the first uh, few weeks after antibody induction therapy, you're less likely to form antibodies uh, may not be true as well. So some important lessons, and I think the takeaway here is we really need to be very cautious and judicious about the use of post-kidney transplant blood transfusions in our patients because it does really increase their risk of developing antibodies against the donor organ, and it really may impact their graft survival, uh, leading to chronic antibody-mediated rejection. So a very nice and elegantly designed study uh, and an important contribution to the, uh, the clinical body out there. John, I have a, just a very quick question. I think it's a fascinating study and, and probably relevant to other organs, too. Um, is there any way to, um, obviously, if somebody is bleeding and needs blood transfusions immediately, that you probably don't have time, but would there be a way you could uh, try to determine uh, whether a specific uh, blood donor would be less likely to have the recipient develop TSA or not, like in advance, if you were planning out a transfusion? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Josh, and they do address that. One of their recommendations is if time permits, and that's often the challenge, but if time permits, probably the best way to reduce um, the deleterious effects of these transfusions would be to try to do HLA matching between the blood donor and the recipient. And again, that can be done. It just requires time, and oftentimes these transfusions are done uh, without much advance notice. But right. certainly they also point to more aggressive use of erythropoietin-stimulating agents in the early post-transplant period uh, and just tolerating lower hemoglobin thresholds to, to avoid this problem. So uh, I guess the, the, it's a good, a good lesson to just be thoughtful about giving transfusions before you do it. It, ha it may have serious consequences. Okay, so I'm going to move on from that to another uh, paper looking at antibody-mediated rejection. Uh, and that's uh, the paper looking at, uh, from the group at Cedars-Sinai, uh, led by Edmund Huang, early clinical experience using donor-derived cell-free DNA to detect rejection in kidney transplant recipients. As I mentioned, this is a, a, a paper looking at the experience of a single center, uh, Cedars-Sinai uh, in L.A., and their use of um, donor-derived cell-free DNA as a biomarker for rejection in their patient population. They use the test over about a two-year period of time uh, in their patients, and, it, and they, they state importantly, and I think this is key to understand, that their transplant center serves a very unique population. I think they uh, admittedly take on one of the highest risk kidney transplant recipient populations in the country. They serve a very uh, large percentage of patients with high levels of antibody sensitization. Um, they take on a lot of risk in terms of antibody, in terms of crossing antibodies, uh, at the time of transplant, and because of that, their patient population is uniquely at risk for antibody-mediated rejection. Now, given that the early experience with uh, donor-derived cell-free DNA as a biomarker in kidney patients suggests that its chief role is in detecting clinical antibody-mediated rejection, that it sort of seems like an ideal population to study. And what they find is, in fact, that in their patients, and again, uh, they present patients that all underwent uh, clinical four-cause biopsies. So these were biopsies that were triggered by another biomarker, such as an elevated creatinine or another um, high suspicion for rejection, such as a spike in donor-specific antibodies. And in those patients, they found what was previously published in the DART trial was that cell-free DNA, uh, using a cutoff of 1% as a threshold, um, was, again, fairly unable to detect cellular rejection in kidney transplant biopsies, uh, but was um, discriminatory for antibody-mediated rejection. Uh, there's a nice accompanying editorial from Roy Bloom describing this, and again, 
it's not clear why uh, antibody mediated rejection tends to lead to bigger elevations in the uh, plasma donor derived cell free DNA levels, but you can posit that uh, since the target of rejection of antibodies is the vascular endothelium, the microcirculation, versus the target for cellular mediated rejection, which is often the tubules and tubular interstitial compartment, you might guess that there would be a higher, uh, a greater release of cell-free DNA into the circulation if you're targeting the, the vascular endothelium. Uh, so again, what they found was that this was the case. Now, you know, a word of caution is that to take these, to take the performance characteristics of a test that's applied to an extremely high-risk population and apply it to a general population, uh, you may see different results. Um, and so I think the takeaway from this is that it seems that uh, donor-derived cell-free DNA is elevated in uh, clinical, and not subclinical, but clinical antibody-mediated rejection. It still often obviously requires a biopsy of the kidney because its inability to detect cellular rejection and the often coexistence of cellular and antibody-mediated rejection and, and of course, the different in, difference in how those are treated. But it adds to the body of literature um, reinforcing that that cell-free DNA is often elevated in episodes of clinical antibody-mediated rejection. And lastly, we're going to move on to the final paper. Um, this is a paper um, out of the, the group of the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, lead author is Carrie Shinstock. And this is Long-Term Outcomes of Ecolizumab-Treated Positive Cross-Match Recipients, Allograft Survival, Histologic Findings, and Natural History of Donor-Specific Antibodies. Again, this is important work because the Mayo Clinic has had one of the world's largest experiences in transplanting patients with a positive crossmatch. And this is a retrospective uh, look at uh, several cohorts of patients that were transplanted throughout the years there um, and trying to determine if, number one, it sort of asked two questions. One is, do patients have different outcomes based on um, the characteristics of the antibodies detected? And number two, can treatment with ecolizumab pre-transplant reduce those risks of long-term and so they compared three groups. One was a group with a standard uh, positive cross-match uh, transplant uh, treated with traditional plasmapheresis, IVIG, and other, other therapies. Um, and then they compared that to a cohort where they used ecolizumab perioperatively and, and post-transplant um, for prevention of AMR. And, of course, ecolizumab uh, can prevent AMR, but it does not reduce the antibody burden at all. And so... Um, and in those patients, most of them did not have any antibody removal therapy, such as plasmapheresis or plasma exchange, uh, and so uh, simply had blocking of the antibody uh, response. Um, and finally, they compared that to a large group of cross-match negative patients. Um, so I, I think the several questions were asked. I think the, the key takeaway from this paper, in my mind, uh, and, the, and the accompanying editorial suggests this as well, that uh, in fact you can risk stratify transplant outcomes based on the characteristics, characteristics of the antibody. In particular, they looked at the strength of the flow cross-match prior to transplant. They looked at a B-cell flow cross-match. And based on an MFI level uh, at their center, you know, they sort of had a high level or a lower level cross-match. And that seemed to be, um, to be associated with worse outcomes, a higher level cross-match. Number two, they looked at C1Q or complement binding, complement fixing antibody. Uh, and that's previously been described as a risk factor for uh, subsequent AMR and worse outcomes. And lastly, they looked at IgG subclass, particularly IgG3 subclass, that may be a worse actor in terms of causing chronic antibody-mediated rejection along the way. And so I, I think that, again, is the takeaway here that, and, and what we've learned from other trials is that more antibody uh, is certainly worse, and that sort of goes along with a higher, tighter 
uh, or higher flow, uh, higher um, MFI flow cross match, and potentially some subclasses of antibodies, those that fix complement or those in IgG3 subclass, may be bad actors, and those in the future could be ones that could be avoided. Uh, it seems that echolizumab treatment didn't show an effect uh, compared to standard desensitization with the other group of positive cross-mass patients, but it was uh, noted that this was a relatively small cohort and not really powered to show a difference between those two. And so I think the jury is still out on whether uh, that echolizumab alone versus in combination with other therapies would be the optimal treatment for patients that need desensitization. Great. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today, John, and um, really exciting uh, clinical, basic, and translational papers this month. Stay tuned. In July, we'll have another group of papers and other podcasts. And thank you for joining. Thanks, Josh.